Would you turn to the 8th chapter of the book of Romans? We'll read verses 31 and 32. What shall we then say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? Let's face it. There's a difference in the lives of Christians. There are some Christians who just have a touch about their lives, who have a sense or note of victory, who, when you're in their presence, it's just so easy to feel and sense the presence of God. There are some that are nominal Christians, and there are some who are phenomenal Christians. Let's face it, there's a difference in the lives of Christians. Have you ever wondered what the difference is? Or what is the secret of the difference? I must confess that I'm a sucker for any book that has the word secret in its title. Secret of success and secret of effective weight loss. Haven't read that book yet, but will. And so when I go into a, a bookstore and I see you know, on the shelf books that you know, are like, have the title, The Secret of the Christian Life, or when I hear a preacher introduce a sermon on the secret of the spiritual life, my ears perk up because I want to know what is the secret of the Christian life. Is it how much you pray and get your prayers answered? Is it how much you get into the Word of God and get that Word into you? Is it how much you go to church? Is it some charismatic experience that happens and after the smoke clears, all of a sudden you've got this dynamic Christian life? Is it that? I've got a, uh, some friends who try to convince me that that the Christian life is starting out with Jesus and graduating to something better. I mean, they, and I tell them that all I know is just that you get Jesus into your life. They say, well, no, you're, you're living on the wrong side of the tracks. You start with Jesus and you graduate to something better. Listen, you don't graduate to anything better than Jesus. All of the resources of the Christian life are in Him. So this is the secret of the Christian life. It's not um, how much you read your Bible or how much you pray, even though that's a part of it. It's not how much you go to church or if you're visiting, witnessing, although that's a part of it. And it's not some charismatic experience. The secret of the Christian life is Christ. I mean, it's just that simple. The secret of the Christian life is Christ Himself. Now there is no verse that reveals that any more, any clearer than the one I've just read. If God is for us, who can be against us? And the key to the interpretation of that verse is in the Greek preposition for. It means in the place of, in the stead of, in behalf of. Now the way we translate that verse commonly is, 
If God is on our side, who can be against us? The only thing wrong with that interpretation is that it's wrong. It's not if God is on our side, it's if God is on in our place, in our stead. For that little Greek preposition is used in the New Testament, in the New Testament to picture substitution. And it's found with regard to the substitution of Jesus for our salvation. Christ died for our sins. That is, He was substituted for us. He stood in the behalf of us, in the place of us. So if that word is really in behalf of or in the place of, the translation is not really our best. If God is on our side, but rather if God is in our place, in our stead, in behalf of us. If that's the way it's translated then, I'm no longer in the picture. I'm out of the picture, and God is in my place, taking my place in behalf of me. Charles Spurgeon says that you cannot understand the gospel apart from the concept or idea of substitution, and you cannot understand the secret of the Christian life apart from the idea of substitution. So I want to take that concept and I want to amplify it so that we can discover the secret of the Christian life. First, Christ as our substitute is the source of our salvation. Now how do we get, to get saved? How do we get the Christian life? How do you become a Christian? For if we can discover how we get salvation, that's going to give us a clue as to how we're to live after we're saved. For the way we receive salvation or Christianity and how we live it are the same. That is, the nature of living the Christian life is the same as the nature of receiving it. Let me give you a kind of a recognizable illustration. I received physical birth. I got physical birth. I got to be here because I received a physical birth. Therefore, I live a physical life. My life I live is the same as the life I got. Physical birth, physical life. Now the way I live the spiritual life is by receiving a spiritual birth. I get a spiritual birth, I live a spiritual life. And I have to say that I'm afraid that some people are trying to live the spiritual life not having received a spiritual birth. They've never been born again. I'm afraid that our church membership roles are crowded with people who are doing their best, trying their best to live the spiritual life who have never received a spiritual birth. And it's just as impossible to live a spiritual life without having received a spiritual birth as it is impossible to live a physical life having never received physical birth. So after having received spiritual birth, if I understand how I got that, I got spiritual birth because of or by the substitutionary work of Jesus, that gives me a clue as to how I'm to live after I'm saved. That is, by the substitutionary work of Jesus. And it all begins with Christ's 
our substitute in salvation. Christ taking our place. In the beginning, God had two alternatives. He could condemn the sinner or He could condemn His Son in the sinner's place. He chose the latter. He condemned sin in, the sinner, in, his, in his Son. He condemned His Son in the sinner's place. And that's what Paul means when he says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He who knew no sin became sin for us in order that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Now he doesn't say that Jesus bore our sins. He said that Jesus became our sins so that God in Christ Jesus paid the part of the sinner and condemned sin in His Son on the cross. And I am saved because God condemned my sin in His Son. He stood in my place. And Peter picks up on that idea when he said, and Christ died the just for the unjust, the word for, in the place of Christ, the just one, died in the place of the unjust one. And that's how God could be just and justifier at the same time. He condemned His Son, my sin, in Him. There's a beautiful illustration of that. It's in the life of Bar... Of, uh, Bar uh, um, what was the guy's name that died, that was to be crucified and Jesus took his place? Barabbas. Oh, great. <laughs> All I could think about was Barnabas. Now, I knew it wasn't that. Barabbas, of course. Wasn't as great an illustration as I thought it was. <laughs> Barabbas. I, I, I thought a lot of times of that man sitting in that cell. I didn't remember his name, but I, I remember him sitting in that cell. And, and in that day, they, they didn't have a date of execution. It could be any time. And so every day when they'd hear, he'd hear those steps coming down to his cell, he thought maybe this is the day. And one day they came, did the Roman guards, open the door, and he saw silhouetted there in the door a Roman soldier, and this was his announcement, you're free to go. And it's not, uh, you know, wild to imagine that uh, Barabbas went out to the place of crucifixion and stood there looking into the face of the man who took his place literally, physically. And I can just hear this conversation going on between Barabbas and the Roman centurion. Who is that man that's sent across? Well, he's this prophet. What's he doing there? Well, he really shouldn't be there. There was a thief we had down in the hole by the name of Barabbas who was supposed to be there. He's dying in his place. The source of our salvation is Christ, our substitute. Second, Christ, our substitute, is the strength of our security. Now when He became our substitute, He became our substitute forever. He still is our substitute. In fact, the New Testament refers to Him now as being at the right hand of God interceding for us. And the word intercession means to stand in the place of another. Same idea as the word for. 
Now, some of my friends say to me, I don't know how you, as a, you Baptists, can believe in security of the believer. How, do you, how can you believe that? And I remind them of John 10, where it says that Jesus said that we, I'm in here. He took my place. He took my place forever. There's no place that it says that He just did that in order to get us saved. He took, he took our place from now on. So that when God deals with me, He doesn't deal with me, He deals with His Son. He's in my place. So that He can no more, more put, me, put me out of His hand than He can put Jesus out of His place. My security is as sure as His deity. He's still in my place. And the devil doesn't deal with me, he deals with Jesus who is in my place. And people who bring charges against me do not bring charges against me, they bring charges against Jesus who is in my place. There is now therefore no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. See, So that the strength of my security is Christ my substitute. Now I've come to the last point and I made the first two kind of short, you know. Short to me, maybe long to you. But I've come to this last point because I want to spend the rest of the time on this because this is really the basis of what I want to say today. Christ, our substitute, is the secret of my spirituality. Now how did I receive salvation? How did I receive spirituality? I received it because Christ took my place. And how is my security assured? Because Christ took my place. And also, how am I to live the spiritual life? What is the secret of spirituality? Same answer. Christ took my place. So that it is not so much me doing the best I can for God, it's not me doing the best I can with God's help, it's just my continuing to be available to the Christ who lives in me. That's the secret. It's continuing to be available to Christ who lives His life out in my personality. Now probably the book of Romans is Paul's greatest work. It is definitely his most profound epistle. Now this Jew, this Pharisee, this member of the Sanhedrin made a discovery that was difficult for a Jew to grasp. Now watch this thing. The discovery that this Jew, this Pharisee, this Sanhedrin member, the discovery he made was this that it is impossible for a man apart from Christ to meet the demands of a holy and righteous God. You just can't do it. I was out visiting not long ago and I was talking to this elderly gentleman about being saved, about becoming Christian. And I was talking to him about the doctrine of grace that God saves us on the basis of his undeserved favor. He couldn't grasp that at all. It was totally different to anything he'd ever really heard or believed. So I asked him, I said, 
tell me how then you think you go to heaven. He said, by doing the will of God. I said, okay, what is the will of God? He said, keeping the Ten Commandments. I said, have you ever kept the Ten? Have you kept the Ten Commandments? He said, I've kept most of them. I said, then you have broken some of the commandments. He said, yes. I don't know anybody who has it, he said. Kind of, you know, thought he had me there. He said, I don't suppose there's any, looking right at me, you know, as if to say, you know. I don't suppose anybody has ever not broken the command." I said, well, I'm, I'm sure you are aware of the fact that the Bible says that if you have broken one commandment, you're guilty of breaking them all. He said, yes, I understand that. I said, then you've just told me that nobody can go to heaven. You've just told me that it is impossible for a man to meet the demands of a holy and righteous God. That's the discovery Paul made. But he made a second discovery. And that discovery, if you and I will ever make this discovery, it will be the first step toward living the Christian life. This is the discovery. He discovered that it is, it is just as impossible for a Christian to live or to meet the demands of a holy and righteous God as it is for a lost man to do it. It's just as impossible. That's encouraging, isn't it? Well, you see, God... When He saved us, He did not eradicate the old sin nature, the old Adamic nature. The Apostle Paul said, he said, Within my flesh, that is, within my old sin nature, there dwelleth no good thing. The only thing good in me is not that the old sin nature has been eradicated and I've been made all of a sudden good, or that I have learned how to live the Christian life, the only difference between me and a lost man is that Christ lives in me. Now the old nature is still there, and if Christ suddenly vacated my life like He just kind of checked in like a, for a weekend at a hotel and moved out at the end of the weekend, if He suddenly vacated my life, I'd go right back to where I was before. For the only thing that is good about me is that Christ Himself indwells me. So that, the, that, that really it's not so much a matter of learning how to live the Christian life and then doing it as it is understanding that Christ lives in us. Now I want to show you some scripture verses. Now if you're really serious about understanding the secret of the Christian life, you're going to turn to these verses. Everybody needs to do it. Now, don't let your wife do it and say, I'll check, I'll see with her after lunch and see if she got it. But everybody needs to turn. And, and, and if you don't have a Bible, you need to look. And we're just going to look at one little epistle for these verses. It's the epistle of, to Colossians, the little book of, a, of Colossians. Just a little bit to the further to the right. Now in this little book there are these scriptures that establishes the fact of the secret of the Christian life. In this little book is found the secret of the Christian life. Christ in you. All right. First one is the 27th verse of the first chapter. 
Colossians 1, verse 27. To whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. Here's the secret. Here's the mystery. Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now watch this. The interpretation of that verse is not Christ in you is your hope of glory. That inter the interpretation is this. Christ in you is glory's hope for you. And it means that way back in eternity past, in the counsels of God, He had a plan for you. His hope for you was that Christ would be in you, Christ in you. And knowing that Christ in you, Christ would be in you, Christ is in you, He knew that you would have glory. It was glory's hope for you. We don't serve an external Christ or an external God. We, we serve a Christ who indwells us and He is glory's hope for us. Second verse, chapter 3, verse 4. Chapter 3, verse 4 says this, reads this way. When Christ, who is our life, underline that. He's saying Christ is my life. Paul said another place, for me to live is Christ. My life is not keeping the rules or obeying the laws or the commandments. Christ is my life. The secret of my life is Jesus Christ. Third verse, chapter 3, verse 11. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free. Here it is. But Christ is all, Christ is all and in all. I believe the King James has it, a southern translation. Christ is all and in you all. Now you need to understand what that says. He's saying that Christ is everything you need. He is all underlined. He is everything that is important to man, that is necessary. Christ is all. What that means is that there is nothing that you really need that Jesus is not. As a matter of fact, the Bible names Him, names of everything that is essential to man. You're hungry, He's the bread of life. You're thirsty, He's living water. You're lost, He's the way. You're ignorant, He's the truth. You're dying, He's the life. You're an archaeologist, He's the rock. You're a zoologist, He's the lion of Judah. You're a botanist, He's the lily of the valley. You're a carpenter, He's the foundation. You're a soldier, He's the prince of peace. You're an author, He's the Alpha and Omega, the first word of the alphabet and the last. He's everything that you need. Now watch this carefully. If He is everything you need and He is in you, then you have everything you need for life. Isn't that exciting? 
if He is everything that is important and He is in you, then you're not deficient for anything. You're more than sufficient. You're more than adequate. You're more than sufficient for life. Fourth verse, chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. For in Him that is in Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in Him you have been made complete. Now what that verse says is, it says a couple of things. One thing it says is that Jesus has proved that the human body can contain the fullness of God. It says that the human body can contain all of God. We are made to be God containers. A number of years ago, Word, Records, Word Record came out with a, with, a, with, a, with, a, with a record called The Game of Life. I sold Word Records to help play my way through school and and, and there was this, this record, and it, was, it, it pictured life as a football game. Had crowd noise there and everything, sounded just like you were at a stadium. And, and, and Christian was, was this ball player, and he was trying you know, to score a touchdown, etc. And, and he just had a terrible time because he had all these you know, opponents, and it named those opponents, which were temptations that come along in life. And toward the end of the story, the game of life, you know, he looks to the sideline where Jesus, the great coach, is walking along the sidelines. And he gives out instructions and he, he uh, uh, sends in plays. And Christian finally, after having looked to the Jesus Christ, the great coach, scores the touchdown and wins the game. Now, it's, it's a great record, but it's horrible theology. What Jesus Christ is not is a, is, is a great coach in life. He doesn't, he's not somebody that stands on the sidelines wishing that we'd do better or sending in plays or encouraging us. He's not that at all. Rather, He is one who indwells you in bodily form, God, container, is a body containing God Himself. So that wherever you encounter, whatever you encounter in life, you have God indwelling you. And that's what the world needs to know. I need to say this. I'm absolutely convinced that the world couldn't care less how many we had in Sunday school this morning. I mean, the world couldn't care less if we had 600 in Sunday school or 500 in Sunday school. Because the world is not impressed with how much you and I do for God. Now that is important to have those records and keeps us up to date with what's going on ourselves. But what the world needs is not somebody to tell them what we're doing for God. What the world needs to know is what can God do for me? Can He do anything about the sorrow that I'm feeling? Can He help me in these temptations that come? Can He bear with me this burden? Is there somebody with me that can get me over the hump? That's what the world needs to hear. And that's what Paul is saying, that Jesus has proved 
that God will come and live in a human body. And in His fullness, everything that He is and possesses is there in dwelling man. Now, I've got a friend that, that, that has this quotation all the time. It says, For this I have Christ. And everything that comes along, he, he quotes that, For this I have Christ. When sorrow comes, for this I have Jesus. When a burden comes, for this I have Christ. When a temptation assails him, for this I have Christ. And you know, you follow the thought of that on out. And you understand what James means maybe for the first time when he says, count it all joy when trials come. Because if I have Christ for these things, then when these things come, really Jesus has a way to manifest what He really is and what He's come to do. So I don't resent their intrusions, you see. For this I have Jesus in my life. What a, what a discovery. For this I have Christ. The way that Jesus lived. Now I'm not going to turn to that passage, but I want you to look at it sometime. The 14th chapter of the Gospel of John. And, and, and they're there in the upper room and Jesus is trying to settle them down. They're disturbed. The reason they're disturbed is because Jesus is leaving them. And they know they've made such a mess while, of their life while Jesus was up present on the earth. They're wondering what it's going to be like now when He leaves. What a mess I'm going to make. And Jesus is telling them, you don't need to be distressed. Don't you understand, He says? Verses 9 and 10, He said, Don't you understand the principle by which I live my life? He said, I never say a thing I haven't heard the Father say. I don't do a thing I haven't seen the Father do. Now watch this carefully. Jesus was saying, don't you understand the principle that I have modeled before you for living? The principle is this. The secret of my life is not my physical presence. The secret of my life is the presence of the Father. And therefore He said, my physical absence is not going to make any difference. For the secret of my life is that I have exchanged my life for the Father's. I live my life with independence upon the Father. Therefore, my absence is not going to make any difference. In fact, he said, you're going to do the same things that I've done when I'm gone and even greater works than these you'll do. Why? Because the Father is still present. How is He present? He's present in human bodies. He dwell, indwells us in these tabernacles of God. I love paintings. I love uh, oil paintings, but I really especially love watercolor paintings. One day I was over at Helen Hoosier's and I was over in her studio looking at her paintings and a guy came in and he's, look, he's looking at those paintings and he said, my, what a brush. He said, let me see the brush that did that. He said, that must be a magnificent brush. I'd like to have a brush like that because if I had a brush like that, that painted that watercolor, I could do the same thing. No, he didn't say that. You, you knew he didn't say that. Because, you see, it's not the brush. It's 
It's the artist. You know, down in the right-hand corner of her paintings, there's the name of the brush. No, there's the name of the artist. When I look in the right-hand corner of that painting, I don't look at the name of the brush. I look at the name of the artist. You know what Jesus is saying in John 14? I'm the brush in the Father's hand. This is the secret of my life, he said. I've just been the brush in the Father's hand. And therefore, when I leave, it's not going to make any difference. You're going to be able to do the same things that I've done and greater than that because you're going to be the same brush in the same Father's hands. How exciting! And I've never been in an art gallery where a brush stood up and said, I did the best I could with the help of the artist. But I have been in an artist studio where the artist said, I did the best I could with the availability of the brush. That is the secret of the Christian life. It's a man or a woman or a young person understanding that he is to make himself available to the artist, to the master. In our service this morning, early service, we had a little child come forward. I'd already talked to her during the week and gave her heart and life to Jesus Christ publicly. Sweet, precious child. You know what she was doing? She was trusting in Christ's death for her salvation and security. And she was trusting in His substitutionary work for her spiritual life. Two people came this morning, joined this church on promise of letter. You know what they were doing? They were saying, we make ourselves available to the artist. We want to know the secret of living the Christian life here in this church. I wonder if there are others who would say the same. My invitation this morning is not for you to do better or to try harder, but to make yourself available to the substitution of Jesus Christ, to live His life out in you and every facet of your living. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for the message of hope that declares to us Christ in us, glorious hope for our living. And I pray that there will be those this morning who would become the brush in the hand of the masters. Because I pray in Jesus' name and for His sake. In a moment, we'll give invitation. Three invitations. One invitation is for you to come this morning and place your faith in Jesus Christ, in the one who took your place. The second invitation is for you to come and join the church, place your life in the church. An invitation this morning for those of us who are living nominal Christian lives.
to make available our life to the indwelling, sufficient, and adequate Jesus. Would you do it? While we stand to sing, we invite you to come.